This week, we are trying something a little bit different, but I think it's gonna be really cool. I'm doing a best of episode for the first time ever. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to take an episode that was really popular. That's an episode with my dear friend, Johnny Minardi. And he is now the VP of A&R for all of Electra Music Group, which includes Fueled by Ramen and Roadrunner Records. I wanted to take that episode that him and I did over a year ago and consolidate it. I wanted to try to do more of like a best of format where the original episode was over two hours long and this one is only a little over an hour. So I kind of shortened a couple pieces. I kind of cut up my favorite stories and clips. So if you do like this, definitely go back and listen to the original because there's even more cool gems in it. Another thing is since recording the episode, Johnny has accomplished so much in his career. He signed Tones and I, he signed Grandson, Nothing Nowhere, Band Camino, Fever 333. He does DTA records with Travis Barker, which is insane. And most recently he signed Meet Me at the Altar. So since we talked last, he has done nothing but just like take over the world of music. So I kind of wanted to bring this episode back to again, look back to his original story because it makes it that much cooler and more impressive. Another thing is when we wrapped that episode over a year ago, we kind of said, if there's other questions, if listeners have other questions for him, we can come back and do a follow-up episode. We're, I'm very lucky to have him as a friend who's willing to come back on the show. So if you listen to this and you like it and you have some specific questions or if you want to hear a specific episode where him and I tackle a subject, let us know. Outside of that, if you've recently found the podcast, wherever you found it, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, do me a massive favor and subscribe because the more subscribers I get, the more cool conversations I can have with people like Johnny, which is my favorite thing in the world. And I would really love to keep it going. I think that says it all. Let's get into a really good episode. Welcome to Where Are All My Friends. It's Thanks for finally having me. real. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. It's been fun to talk about and watch you do what you're doing. Yeah, it feels like a really full circle moment. I'm stoked <laughs> on it. Awesome. Yeah, same. Um, so, okay. So I think the first thing is for anybody that doesn't know you, just like a brief introduction on who you are and what you do. Dope. My name is Johnny Minardi. I started a record label when I was 18. Well, before that, I started street teaming for a ton of bands when I was like 13, 14, just junior high and high school. And I was the kid always finding music and showing all my friends and passing out samplers and stickers and cassettes and cds and whatever any companies i signed up for everything so i just basically got way too much stuff and i was just that kid at school so it was fun and then when i was 18 i found a couple local bands and i just said fuck it i want to figure out how to put these bands out and i didn't know anything and dove in had a fun for like three and a half years and signed a bunch of stuff that was very local but then it kind of expanded and it was bands like Hidden in Plain View and Gatsby's American Dream and Academy Is, and all three of them went on to other bigger labels. So I was starting to kind of meet other labels. And at the time, Academy Is signed to Fubar Ramen, which then I went with and had a great relationship with the owner. Um, so I moved down to Tampa, worked with him for eight years, uh, not all in Tampa. They moved from Tampa to New York. I moved back to Chicago, but I worked at Fubar Ramen for eight years. Um, he left and then in that interim, I left and started a management company, self-titled management, which I still do today. That was 2012. So coming up on seven years this October, which is crazy. 
Um, and then in the meantime of that, a couple of years later, I started working at Equal Vision Records yeah. and was there for a little over two years. And just now, about two years ago, I'm back at Feel Bar Ramen with the Electro Music Group and Roadrunner and a few other labels in the label family. So that is kind of the really quick version of the last, fuck, what is that now? Like 20 plus years-ish yeah, at this point. Crazy. So good companies though. Yeah. So, okay. So there it is. That's the intro of it. I remember getting invited to a concert early on, you know, probably in late elementary school. It was, I remember the exact day, actually, it was December 1st, 1996. I went to a radio festival and it was headlined by Corn right after they put out Life is Peachy, which was at the time my favorite. Oh, um, and, this but, like, explains new metal Johnny. Totally. But at the same show, it was like, Weezer and Bloodhound Gang and Fiona Apple. You know, it's like one of those radio, like okay. very strange, like 10 band bills. They each played like 25 minutes, I'm sure. Yeah. So that was the first show. And I was just so confused at like, whoa, this is awesome. Like people get to do this. Like it was like one of those like eye-opening moments. And then like um, I think a friend in seventh grade asked me to go see Smashing Pumpkins. And I didn't go because for some it was like sold out. And at the time, you, you know, you didn't know how to get tickets if it was sold out. Even when it wasn't sold out, it was hard to figure out how to get tickets at the time, oddly so enough. It's funny to think about. It was crazy because it was like, he invited me. He's like, yo, I know someone that could get tickets to this show. And that, like, think about someone saying that to you right now. That makes no sense. But at the time I was like, what? And I would like tell my friends, be like, yo, he knows someone that could get us into the show. Holy shit. Yeah, it was a really strange like moment where you're like, oh, I guess you're not really taught that you could just walk up and buy tickets. And then I heard about like Fireside Bowl and like all these smaller venues that were like more punk and whatever you want to call it at the time. And you'd go there and like, I had no clue how any of it worked. So I just kind of like got deeper and deeper into that culture where like I go see a show and there's four bands. I thought if all four bands were playing, then the he the headliner that I liked must have really liked them. So I would buy all of their records. Oh I literally God. would go to the show and go up to the merch booth and buy a record from each of them. You're the perfect fan. It was the best. And like, I didn't know, I like the first probably like 10 shows I did that. And I would literally leave with like a stack of CDs, no shirts, no nothing, just all CDs every time. Just to learn the music. Yeah. Cause I was like, well, if I love that band and they love these bands, I didn't know how like bills right. were made. That's so like honest and innocent and pure in yeah. like the best way. But like, that's just a kid getting into music and loving totally. it. And it was just, I engulfed myself in it that way where I just had no idea. No one taught me that. No one taught me anything. I would just go to shows with this buddy that was like, yo, what are you doing Tuesday? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, there's a $8 show. You want to go? Great. When I was in high school, I made friends with my this dude, Tom Conrad, who later went on to be in Academy Is for the first couple of years of their band. Oh, shit. Okay. So he would always wear shirts where like band shirts where it was like small brown bike, hot water music, like get up kids, like all this shit. So I didn't know him, but I would always see his shirts and I would like literally go home. And this is before like Spotify and YouTube even. Yeah. And I would like have to find a way to like find a song by that band. And then we kind of became friends eventually. I think, I don't know how I broke the ice to like be like, oh, dude, you like good shit you know how fucking high school works i don't know what lunch table or we had a mutual friend finally so i could ask um and then he was like oh yeah i'm actually in a band like 504 plan i was like oh cool and then he like gave me a a cdr of their their lap their seat whatever the latest recordings were and i was like i took it home and i legitimately like loved it like in the sense where i was like this is just as good as the bands that he, i've learned from him yeah so i very again i was like an innocent like bystander of like watching this cool thing happen and i was like dude like when are you playing next so i'd go to a show 
And eventually like I met, I would go to their practices and like, I would just start to be like the fifth member of the band where I was like, all right, so I heard about this show. You guys should probably play it, like figure out these like very weird, like whatever. And then I'd go with them early, sound check, help them like set up, yeah, sell their merch. And eventually they're like, what are you like, what are you doing this for? I was like, I don't know. I just really like your band. Like I had no expectation or no reason to do it. I just yeah. liked it. And I was like, it's weird so, when you can think about it this way of like, they legitimately were like one of my favorite bands to where I was like, one of my favorite bands, like I can hang out with. And yeah. I could help and just do whatever they need to get bigger. And I didn't understand why. I was like, why don't, why aren't labels signing you? And they're like, they would kind of laugh because they've been around music longer than I was, or at least industry side that whatever you think of it. You and, just had like this very like genuine, like, this is awesome. So why not this attitude? Yeah. Like, I love this band. So of course I'd help. Totally. Where other people would be like, well, wait, like, what about this? Or why aren't you considering this? Like no one ever gave you that doubt. So totally. you were kind of just like, well, this seems right. Yeah, I was like naive in a good way of yeah. not having the information. And, and coming from like the background of street team to touch back on that, it's like I was always a kid that would find stuff early and then show everyone. So I was like, man, if I showed more people this band, yeah, more people would like it because it's good and it's better. It's not just like I'm pushing a band I don't know or care about. It's like legitimately the, for the first time, I'm like, hey, this band goes to our high school or like two of them, one of them does and the other ones go to down the street and whatever. And it was like, come to the show Friday. It's five bucks. Who cares? Just come, just come. And yeah. I'd get five new people or 12 new people or like whatever minimal amounts. But it was like, they're like, dude, what are you doing? This is crazy. Like I'd like, like little pieces that would help. And then eventually they were like recording, showing me new songs that they wrote, but they didn't record them yet. And I was like, well, are you going to sign to a label? And they were like, well, we'd love to, but that's, you know, you just don't get record deal. You just yeah. got to still do this. And I yeah. was like, oh, okay. And none of our friends had signed to a label yet. Right. So we didn't know it like was possible even. Right. Well, especially then too, like internet is less accessible. So yeah. like it definitely seems like that was a time of like the label gods. Like totally. It was gatekeeper less, all day. Yeah. Like there was no access. Find your favorite labels or you're this people and fucking yeah. DM them or whatever. Like that's just not there. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. And then I just approached him and was like, well, if you're not going to sign to a label, why don't I put out your record? Why don't I start a label? And I literally said it without a plan. Yeah. And they were just like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. Just let me put it out. And yeah. then I'll tell as many people about it. And they were yeah. kind of like, I guess that's what a label is when it boils down. <laughs> So I was like, yeah. So I literally took this. My grandma had like four grand set aside for me to go to college in a year Holy to like shit. to like go get books or whatever. You know, I don't yeah. even know. Um, so instead of going to college, I basically told my parents, "Hey, I want to use that money and put out my friend's bands." And they were like confused, but also like, "All right, you got a year." That's fucking honestly, that's crazy, and that's awesome. Yeah, and they were just like, "Well, you got a year to figure it out, and if not, then you go get a job." And I was like, "Okay." The pivotal point was a band called Knockout from Chicago okay. that we were all very close with. And the drummer, Damar, is now in Plain White Tees, and he's been in the band forever. Okay. Um, so they signed, I was working at the record store still, and they signed a Fearless Records. Wow. And this was a local band that we had played, the 504 Plan had played probably like 20 to 30 shows with. So you know what I mean? Homies. They were just like, like almost brother bands, if there was such a thing as you know yep. there is. Um, when they signed, we all kind of were like, no fucking way. And it was like a thing where like, I could then tell my parents or my friends like, hey, look, our friends band that we play with, we're on the same flyer here, 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 and here. Like they just got signed. Like we're onto something. Like this is, this is like happening for someone that we know. So then they went in and they actually recorded their record with Sean O'Keefe and wow. like Patrick from Fall Boy sang a bunch of like 
a bunch of harmonies on the record. So it's like, we were all starting to like grow into this area of like this real scene. The people that you just mentioned there, yeah. that's a very special <laughs> amount of, yeah, well, like we got, that's a, a collection of people. Yeah. Like you're saying like Fallout, like uh, Patrick from Fallout Boy is singing on it. At that time, did it feel like it was like something special or that maybe those people would go on to do? There was a switch, but early, no. I mean, they were playing skate parks to 12 people. Like it was all of those bands, you know what I mean? So it's like, we just literally were having fun and then you'd meet up with another band and be like, hey, let's go play three shows together somehow. Like, And then I would call like something in Milwaukee, whatever venue to be like, hey, I have two bands I want to come up. Do you have two Milwaukee bands I could play yeah. with? And like, you just set yeah. up a terrible tour. So it like was just people one. doing what they love. Yeah, wasn't and really it was just much like thought. All of... like-minded, all trying to build this little Chicago scene. LLR went through a few iterations, which is actually funny to look back on. Like I started it myself and I was always a guy that wanted like a teammate. Like I, for some reason, just didn't have like the confidence to be like, I do this. I'll call everyone. I always wanted like a partner. Yeah. Um, so I brought in a couple friends, Sean Van Vliet, who you've probably met. Oh, yeah. Um, Sean Cummings, who's another one from Displains. All kids I grew up with. Literally everyone from Displains that I'm about to name. So um, and, and that was cool. They were kind of bouncing in and out. I don't think they had as much interest or like I was going to like let's call it a hundred shows a year. They'd go to like three, like they just liked it, but it wasn't like their passion. They were just like, this is cool though, what you're doing. Yeah. But it was always kind of like my thing and they would just like help and want to get involved or whatever. No one ever really put money in or anything like that outside of me. And then years later, Tony and I used to be really close in like grade school. We would go to like baseball card trading shows and like trade oh. like VHS bootlegs of like corn and limp biscuit shows, like real deep. Like we would just start like really silly businesses all the time. Yes. So like, but in high school, he got really into like a car scene, which you obviously know I've now. I've nerded out with him yeah. heavy on that. So we, him and I were close still, but not like that as close as, you know. Where you went, where you doubled down on music, he doubled down on cars. Totally. Yeah. But then we like kind of randomly started hanging out a little bit more again through whatever friendships or whatever. Yep. Um, and that was kind of showing him stuff. And he like lit up, like he totally like understood it. And like he was actually kind of still living the culture or like wanting to, and then kind of came full back in. And it was like perfect partner for wow. everything because he had such a different mindset of yep. like, how how business operates and like you know we liked all the same music so it wasn't a, ever a conversation but yeah. he was always just like we're spending too much money i'm like we have to this is how it works you have yeah. to like go i mean we've spent so much dumb money like it's mm -hmm. unreal like if we talked about it now i mean we were everyone thought we were killing it with our releases we were like 30 i think it was just under thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt i think that and like of course that'll evolve in the story but like i just think that that point is so important because like you I don't know, fearlessly, but like you took a crazy risk yeah. and you just no plan went into that much debt because you were that excited about it. And like, I feel like that ties in as a theme about a lot of things, but yeah. that's crazy. And I also love, like, I feel like Tony is that balance of like seeing you guys together yeah. in person now. <laughs> um, and Tony ended up back in music and has gone on to tour manage artists. And yeah. that is his professional career. Totally. He's so good at what he does the business side like yeah. he absolutely he was the best i've ever met at it so yeah he would keep me in check and then i would push back and then we'd find a middle ground of like fine fuck it but yeah we got really lucky too actually there's a, a a moment when we were doing that 
um, Richard and Stephanie from Drive Through, we reached out to, and they gave they like literally were like, if you come out here for a week, you could literally shadow us and just learn from our label. And it was our favorite label, Drive Through Records. That is unreal that they did that. It's for crazy. You. I think about it all the time, and I still see them all the time, and literally tell them that story, and they're just like, that's so crazy. So. Um, so we, yeah, we literally learned from them and asked them every question. We were so annoying. Like yeah. we were the most annoying people that they were, they would put us to work. We interned like basically for a week, like crash course and in internship. Yeah. And I remember they had, uh, on the window, they had a, st a clingy, um, poster thing, um, that like record stores would hang and it had the Blink-182, um, take off your pants and jacket promo photo and like this record coming soon. And I was just like, because they were very friendly with them and Blink took out Phoenix TX, which was like the first drive-through band to ever blow up. And then I walked in and it was just like piles of like Finch posters or Starting Line or like all these bands that I just loved. And it was like, this is like Disney World to me. Like yeah. it felt like, and then they let us go and we worked for a week. And then at the last day, they let us go into their merch warehouse and be like, pick as much stuff as you guys can carry and just bring it out. Yeah. So like we each walked in, walked out with like 15 t-shirts of all of our favorite bands. So it was like a moment that I was like, I'm doing this. And the second I can do this for anyone, like I will. Like it was just a really cool, it all clicked. You have such a story. So I don't want to like super fast forward, but you have so much to tell. So those are early days. That's Chicago. LLR ends up putting out an Academy Is record. Yes. So we signed William Beckett to As Remember Maine, acoustic record. Um, was awesome. Started to get traction. Quickly became our bestseller. Mm -hmm. It was like our fifth or sixth release. We put out 10 records total in three years. Um, it was our probably fifth release. And it was great. We're taking them on tour, learning the ropes, doing everything like that. And then right as we started to like sell out of a pressing and press a new one, he was like, hey, I started a band. Uh, you guys should come check it out. And we were like so pissed because we we're like, dude, we're finally like breaking even. This is the first record we've ever not lost money on. Yeah. Like, don't ruin this. And then we went and he was like, it's called the Academy. It, it's called the Academy. Right. And you guys should see it. And we came to the drummer's basement and they played, they only had two songs. It was In Our Defense and Memento Mori. And they played them, I think like three times each just to like, because that's all they had. So they did this and- after the first time through, I think Tony and I kind of looked at each other. We're like, fuck, it's really good. <laughs> like, it was like, we wanted to be right, but we were wrong. Yeah. And then like, we had him play it again and then again, and we hung out for a little bit. And then we went our separate ways. I don't know if we had dinner that night or the next night, but like Tony and I talked about it. We're like, obviously. Run it up, credit yeah, cards, like, here, here we it go. goes. This is it. This is yeah. obviously what we're supposed to do. So yeah, we just convinced them to sign a, a record deal. We did three records with them uh, on the deal. And then we went to a point where um, that first one was doing so well that Pete Wentz had Decadence. And, and the first one was? Uh, it was just called, it was at first the Absolution EP, but it was just an EP. So it was before Almost Here. And then um, John, who ran Fieldball Ramen, flew out to see them open for Fall Out Boy, specifically to see them. So like me, Tony... Um, and then William and Mike from the band lived together at the time where we were running LLR from. We were, just a, we were a really tight knit group. And John flew out, stayed on our couch, um, hung with us for two days. And John just, Janik? Yeah. Stayed on your couch? Yeah, for a, a whole weekend. Damn it, I love that. Yeah, it's a funny one. And then we he literally would <laughs> just like deep dive into me and Tony's world, into their world, into the band. And then like at the end, he's like, look, I want to sign this band, but like, I know you have them under contract for two more records or whatever. And we're like, yeah. And we're like, and here we are, like, 
we're about to get rich. Yeah. Like we're going to get bought out. We're going to get a couple hundred grand. Dude, like this is all you yo, hear about, right? Yeah. Like you only hear those stories at that time. And he was just like, I'm going to level with you. And this is where he's a great negotiator later in life learning, but also learning that they didn't have a lot of money because they were truly like just breaking Fall Out Boy. And that was the first band that they were making real money off of. So he's like, we don't have the money, but like, we really want to sign them. Like, whatever like it yeah. kind of was very weirdly open-ended and then yeah. like the next couple of days in the house was very weird tension because it was like here's our two best friends that we've worked with for a year and a half two years now that were like kind of looking at us like please we're you're standing in between us and our dream like how do we work this out yeah so it got to a point where we were like well what's this really worth we're gonna have a disgruntled artist for the next five years that's probably gonna hate us or break up because we're not gonna get them big enough to stay they're all gonna have to go to college at some point so like whatever, let's just fucking let them go and do their thing. So we did, it was very hard conversations, but we tore up the contract and said, go do your thing, just, you know, whatever, good luck and yeah. keep us around. But FCR did buy it out. No. What? Free. Oh my God. Yeah, we just tore it up. We said, fuck it. Oh my God. Yeah, because we were just like, we're not gonna get anything great out of them anyway if they hate us. That shows a lot about you guys because like, damn, like that is what at first you viewed was like your paycheck. Yeah. And then you had to just go and be a good person and just like, yeah, it was, I don't know the exact conversations we had, but it was a fucked up, like, that's we have to do this, otherwise we're not getting anything great out of it anyways, right? Holy shit. And I feel like I even called, like, Pete to discuss it, and he was kind of like, look, like, that's, that's, like, a strong move, and, like, I have to imagine that's going to come back around. Let Then, that happens, they go make a record. In the meantime, John calls us to offer us jobs to go work at Feel Bar Ramen and all this other shit. And we kept saying no, because we still wanted to do the label. Yeah. Like three or four separate times we said no. Unreal. Yeah, it was crazy. And then I think even Pete re-approached us and was like, dude, what are you guys doing? And we were like, yeah, I guess you're right. So like we called back and it was like, at the time though, they had asked Tony to be their tour manager. Yeah. Um, so then I took the job, was moving to Florida and Tony went on to be Academy's tour manager. So that's how we kind of like, that's when we were closed down LLR, where we were like, okay, we have to take a step. I was at the time 21. I think Tony was 21 as well. Yeah. So we made the jump and like just had a huge like weight off of our shoulders because we were like, well, we still, well, we still owed all that money. Yeah. So that was like on our personal credit cards at that point because we Jesus. didn't have a real business. So yeah, whatever it was, that was the kind of leap of faith that like ended LLR and projected me into Feel by Ramen and then Tony onto tour managing. I got to the like, Feel Bar Ramen at the exact right time yes. with all my friends too, because Fall Out Boy was still there yep. and Academy is was there. And yep. then like Gym Class Heroes was signing there. And I had just seen them play to like 40 kids at like a park district in Chicago, oh my like God. randomly through the drummer of 504 plant who found oh them and showed Pete God. and I. So it's like all of these people found their ways through different weird like waves of everything what a magical time in that chicago music it was scene. so good that's and it was unreal and that's why it's like i always feel so bad when a kid's like well how do i build my scene it's like i don't fully know because <laughs> yeah. i got really lucky with super talented people but we did take full advantage of that like yeah. that's what i will say the one thing that i will give everyone a pat on the back for is like everyone kind of saw it and felt it and went all in okay so then that brings you into fueled by ramen and what did you do at fueled by ramen um, I actually started at retail because they were expanding so fast because Fall Out Boy was blowing up off Take This to Your Grave. Yeah. And I had come from working at the record store for four years, yeah. um, but also running my own label. But the label was so small, it only signed probably like two artists a year. So it didn't need like more A&R because right. even if I found cool bands, 
that we didn't, it was like a seven person company. It was like nothing. Yeah. So I moved down there to do retail. So I was the one doing all of the, like getting records in stores, making sure that our shit was stocked or we had like different advertising programs or marketing programs with whatever local store you would go to and you know, where you were, where everyone grew up. So while you're doing that, was it, did it feel like, hell yeah, I love this? Or did you kind of like, were you like, I want this is cool, but I want to do this. It was another one of those drive-through moments where like just being in the office, waking up and going into an office, especially me moving 1500 miles from Chicago. Like I was in it, I was living it. And I very much was like, oh my God, I get to go into a record label every day. But like every morning I'd go sit in John's office for like 20 to 30 minutes at least in the morning, check in, see what's going on. He'd play me a new song or a new CD or whatever he was like digging. So I literally got a crash course from like one of the dudes that like completely exploded the whole scene. Okay, so my other question, well, I have another. Okay, John Janik. Yeah. Again, just like the Chicago music scene, Jesus God, going back and thinking about what you were surrounded with, unreal. Right. But at the time it wasn't that. It was just people trying their best. Totally. Was there any type of feeling with Janik of like, this guy's going to go and do some crazy shit? Or was it just, oh, this guy's really good at his job and I want to learn from him? Um, More of the, this guy's really good, I want to learn from him at first until it was like consistently like holy shit moments that were beating our previous holy shit moments. Mm. So once there was like enough of those stacked up, we were like expanding a little faster. Yeah. And then the moments really came when we went, when they moved up to New York and I moved back to Chicago because- when I first visited that office, I had never known what real major label offices were. And we were in the Atlantic Warner Brothers building. Yeah. And we were just like a little wing of the Atlantic floor. Right. So it was like corporate, Amer- like banker financial buildings. Yeah. So you'd walk in and go, what the fuck? Like, this is like, I was like so nervous to be there. Yeah. Like, I did not like the feeling of being there because it was like a strange, like, oh, this was cool when I was like in a weird little office but you guys are on this level. And it was like, that's the records that were being sold. And that's his yeah. consistency at that point. I was like, oh fuck, this guy is like, I don't know if I ever thought he would leave Feel by Rama to be honest, but I also was like, this is gonna be a label that impacts people for the rest of time. Like this will be what Atlantic has been for the last 80 years or however long it had been around at that point. Tell now where Janik has ended up. Not that you guys are super close boys, but if anybody doesn't know. Yeah, no, we're still, we're good. And he, he now runs Interscope Records. He was Jimmy Iovine who started Interscope Records, literally tapped him, personally picked him to bring him to go run Interscope Records. So like literally one of the three biggest major labels in the world with like such a crazy story history, like he is running now. Yeah. After starting Feel by Ramen in his dorm room in Gainesville, Florida. Unreal. Yeah. I just love the story of you with the Panic at the Disco album. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Panic, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out um, was coming out. And again, to go back to the first Academy Is practice, that is kind of what happened with that band too. So that band came kind of out of nowhere where Pete found them off of a fallout boy message board. I think the band posted a, one or two demos on there. Um, and then we flew out and went to their practice space where they literally had two demos, two songs, and they just played them a couple times for us. And it was like one of those moments again, where you're just like, yeah, this is unbelievable. And Brendan's voice and just like sitting with them, they were like talking about, oh yeah, we want to do like our live show. We want it to be like this fucking circus and have like live animals and fire breathers. And then we're like, <laughs> all right let's put out like a fucking pop punk record and figure out the world like relax and then like a year into their first record cycle they were doing most of that shit and we're like 
oh, this is what you meant. You had this planned all along. So it's pretty cool to watch the conviction of that band really pull through. Um, so yeah, I was the the retail guy at Field Bar Ramen at the time. And we had just linked up with, or were linking up with Atlantic, but yeah. we weren't fully like partnered yet. But we had met a couple of them because we were, I think, Vilby was being courted to like come in and be bought by Atlantic at the time or something. Um, and John actually had his honeymoon in Greece or Italy. I forget. I think Italy. And he was over there for like 10 days. And right smack dab in the middle of that is the Panic at the Disco release. Yeah. So he basically was like, gave us so many like prep talks on like, all right, if this goes crazy, you got to do this, you got to do that, whatever. And I'm sitting there like the GM of the company is there and you know, he's, couple years older than me this isn't like seasoned veterans yeah. we're all like kind of figuring out including john we're figuring out as we went um so the record's getting ready to come out um you could feel a lot of stuff going on they've been one of five on like two tours at this point like you don't know exactly what's happening this is like myspace era where like that's what you had to base off like pre-orders like we put out a pre-order it did well but not like oh my god we have to figure this out something had happened right before and you ship records to a store like three weeks prior. So like your bed's made by the time first week happens. Good luck. Hopefully you sent enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was it. So you learn the hard way if you don't. So John's gone. He like, not only is he way in the future time-wise, but he's also like not accessible. Like I can talk to him maybe once a day if I'm really lucky. So I think actually his wedding day was on the release day or something to where it was like super off limits, but I was like reaching out and whatever. Uh, so they, so I basically wake up on panic at the disco release day and I'm getting calls from, I think they're managers. I'm getting calls from our distributor who's not Atlantic. And they're like, Hey, it's 10 AM on the, I'm just getting in the office. They're like, it's 10 AM on, you know, the East coast and every best buy is blown out. And I was just like, well, no, that can't be right. We sent them this many. They're like, they're all gone. They're uh-huh. all sold. And I was like, holy shit. And then like an hour later, all the Midwest stores, same conversation. And then the distributor called me back and was like, you have to green light more records right now. And I was like, well, how many do you think? Like, I have no idea. I've never done this math because it's never happened like this. Yeah. And I think we put out like 10 to 15,000 physical copies. And that was a lot. Yeah. Like that doesn't sound that crazy anymore, I guess, but it still kind of does. But it was like, we were fucked. And it was just like, they're like, you need to green light. I want to say it was like 30 to 40,000 right now like this second, otherwise we're going to miss out on getting these in store. This was a Tuesday. That's when records came out on Tuesday. Yeah. Otherwise you will not have them in stores for the rest of the first week. If we green light it now, we could print them and get them in stores by Thursday, maybe Friday, you will literally save this first week. And I like, was like, I can't green light that. Cause if you figure, even if a record costs $2, yeah. they're asking me to spend like almost a hundred thousand dollars at an independent label. Independently. Like- it's a lot of money. Like we don't, we didn't spend that. The record I think costs like $15,000 to make. Yeah. Like it was nothing. So I was like, I can't spend like this much money. I can't do it. They're like, you literally have to, like everyone's yelling at me, management's calling me, everyone. And then finally I'm like, well, I met this guy, Adam Abramson at Atlantic, which I still work with now, which is amazing. Oh, cool. Um, And I was just like, what do I do here? And he's like, he's like, well, what numbers are they showing you? And I sent him an email with the numbers from all the best buys. He's like, green light it right now. I'm (laughs) like, are you sure? Like, I'm going to get fired over this if it goes wrong. He's like, you will literally save the day. And I was like, okay. So I literally did it. They went on to sell, I don't even remember, I think it was like 13,000 copies first week or something, all in tune to like a huge chunk of them being that Friday to Monday that we needed. 
And like, I remember the next morning, John finally called and was like, what happened? What happened? And I like showed him, he was on email chains, but he wasn't like calling. And he's like, what did you end up doing? I was like, John, I greenlit, I think 50,000 copies. And he's like, great job. And I was like, whoa, okay, great. And then like, (laughs) we got sales numbers through the weekend and he was literally emailing me every morning from Italy being like, holy shit, like all of these numbers are because you did that. Like it was very pat on the back kind of moment where like, again, I could have lost my job if I did that. And it was like, what are you doing? I told you not to, because he prepared us for a lot, but not, not that. That was insane. We No one planned or saw that coming. So that was a huge crash course and like, holy shit. And luckily I had a guy like Adam with probably at the time, probably five, 10 years experience of doing that full time, which now he's our like all retail digital. He, so he's our Spotify playlist pitch. Like he's like still, that's like a homie. And I always pull him into meetings now. And I'm like, I tell the story. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause he doesn't even fully remember it. Cause it's probably another day in his to job. Him, he was just like, okay, yeah, that's my pal, Johnny. Sure, I was like, whatever. yeah, Adam saved my life. And I explained the story and he's like, that's crazy. I don't even fully remember that phone call. And I'm like, what the fuck? It's like, yeah, it's so funny. monumental for yeah. you. So become an A&R working directly with Janik as the only other A&R. Yeah. Saving the day with panic, like in the stride of the best FBR days. Like this is a golden, golden era. Yep. Make some of your best friends. Tony stays panicking or uh, DMing. Right. um, Academy is like, I'm sure you guys are close. You're in an Academy is song, which I love. Yep. Which song is it? Down and out. God damn it. It's good. (laughs) Listen to that song, listeners. (laughs) It's a good song. Um, So now take me to the point of eight years to the day completely. Yeah. It was a weird moment. So my now wife was living with me at the time. And we I remember getting the phone call. And I I had an actual an engagement ring in the closet she didn't know about. We were literally signing sheets to like put in offers on condos and all this shit. And I get a call one morning that was just like, you know, to go back, John had left six months prior to go take over Interscope. Which you it, never expected. Yeah, that so that happened. was weird. But then I became closer with the Atlantic staff because now there was no head of Field by Ramen. I was just an A&R guy on kind of an island that was like, okay, I'll still do my bands, but I'll get more in tune with the Atlantic A&R staff. Did you meet Mike then? Uh, Mike was the head of radio when A Rocket to the Moon. Whoa, yeah. cool. So we had known each other like a little bit of like a couple month campaign. Oh, tell the listeners who Mike is. Mike Easterlin, who now, who over the last like, I guess five years was the head president of Fuel by Ramen and Roadrunner, which now is the co-president of the Electro Music Group with Greg Nadell as of six months ago in October. Amazing. So yeah, a lot of full circle moments, but again, a good thing to like you know, friends and good relationships going and, and always do the right thing. Because like, if I was a dickhead, you know, getting, we'll get to the part going back to feel our almond, that conversation would have been pretty short and not happen. So, yeah. So, okay. So, um, yeah. So I get that call where it's like straight up, like I was trying to get myself infiltrated into Atlantic. So there was a moment, there was a Sunday night where, um, the CEO of Warner music, Lior Cohen up and left. No surprised everyone. He just, was gone from the company. So in a corporation that big, what I'm told at least, this is all literally what I've been told and know nothing else, is there's a board of directors that was like, okay, they panic. for they. The first thing they do when something like that, like big figurehead of the president of the president or whatever, they panic and they start layoffs because they want to start to like take money off the books instead of like hemorrhaging money while they figure out who's going to take over. So- Apparently it was like a list of people and they literally just started grabbing, you know, a couple names and were like, these got to go, these got to go, whatever. And I was one of those casualties. 
even though like everyone, it was told to um, the head of A&R at Atlantic at the time. And he was like, no, like, you know, this dude, one, I probably didn't even make close to what a lot of people were making because I lived at home in Chicago. I didn't need a New York salary. I was just having fun and whatever. And people fought for me to stay. And then it inevitably didn't work because the board was like, you do it or we're doing it, like kind of ultimatum. So that happened. Um, it was in a really fucked up moment. And it was just like, whoa, this ride's over. What year? Uh, 2012. October 1st, 2012. Damn. Yeah. So that was a weird moment. And again, like I'm having this panic in my head. Like I have an engagement ring. We're about to buy a condo. We're doing all this real life shit. Yeah. And I literally walk upstairs um, and she was working from her laptop from home that day. And I literally walked up and was just like, I just got let go. And she was just like, obviously didn't believe me because i was on the phone working the prior hour or two already and like killing it yeah it was just fine everything was good like there was no weirdness and then i had to like explain it and it was like a moment where like for like two hours i sat there like not knowing what just hit me and i was like calling janik who was already at interscope i called joe calitri who was the gm i called eric i called all these other people at the company and no one had ever heard of it no one ever knew about it because it was so sudden right and it was above everyone's heads it was just like pointed down on so like reassuring to know that at least everyone wasn't in cahoots but yeah still you're it wasn't performance no based job. or anything like that which actually was fine at the time didn't matter to me but looking back it's like okay cool so i did the right thing i gave everyone kind of a note saying like thanks for everything i learned from you whatever yeah. um and by the end of that day i started self-titled management I, holy shit yeah what? like literally within three hours i had like four clients five clients that's fucking crazy the the piece because we've talked about it a bit but like, I didn't know it was the same day. I didn't realize it was the same day. Yeah. How the fuck did you come to that so quickly? How did you sit because, there and have like so, sad hours for fucking two hours? Well, yeah, and then I like be good. I think the reason was because I was I was having conversations with Casey for months prior because he was kind of like trying to get me to manage him, and I was just like, I don't want to do that. Okay. Like, so it was kind of like in my brain, and then I was also managing William Beckett because he had broke off and doing a solo project. So I was helping him. So I was kind of like, man, I'm already kind of managing or like I was managing him. And then I kind of with my buddy, Josh Terry. Um, and and then like I was like, man, I don't know if I want art. I don't want to do artist stuff. But like, I really like this idea with Casey. So I called him first, talked through it. And I was like, well, hey, why don't I just do this with like a couple of the other guys I know don't have representation or had it and don't now or whatever reasons. Um, so, yeah, like I literally think I called five people and got five clients like that day. And I remember it, it was like, I got the call at like 10 a.m. my time in Chicago. And by like four o'clock, I had five people on a roster. And then and then I let myself like breathe where I just went to, my buddy was having a fire at his house and I just got fucking hammered and would like wallowed in it. <laughs> and it was just like, I don't know what's happening in my life anymore. Like that moment where oh, I was like, okay. but I, I wanted to set up the management stuff before I let myself become pity party. Okay. So you're a human. You, yeah. You like are I a had human. to, you had your moment. But, where but I like, also probably fuck. looked like a fucking zombie walking up to tell Nicole to go, Hey, I just got laid off. Um, so tell me your side of coming to equal vision. Yeah. So my wife and I, or I guess my fiance at the time, we're now in uh, the condo said mm-hmm. condo. Um, and I was running self-titled and we had just gotten married. Yeah. We got married like six months after we got the condo. Um, and then we, uh, she, she was pregnant with our daughter and we, she was like four months pregnant. And I kind of had another one of those moments where I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're about to have a child and you're like betting on like, hopefully self-titled one consistently bringing in money, but also like never 
ending or getting slow or like, you know, it's just one of those moments where I was like, what are you doing? Um, so I like randomly one night woke up in like a sweat and was like, I know I have to start a label. Like I want to start a label again. Like I know I'm watching all these other like labels grow. And I was like, I was, I started a label before some of those labels that now blow up. Like I could do it now. I have enough knowledge. Let's do it. So I'm like, well, the problem is, is I need like kind of income and I don't want to use my credit cards again and do LLR all over again. And I also kind of need insurance because I don't know if she had, she had insurance, but it wasn't like full family coverage or something like that. So I was like, well, fuck, I need to figure out a salary and insurance and someone to pay for my label. So like, that's not a good checklist to need. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to call Dan. And again, this is why I say like, I didn't know him that well. This call that I made to him was so out of the blue. And I just was like, yo, I'm going to start a label. I want it to go through Equal Vision because I know nothing but great things. All of my friends that have been on it or near it speak so highly of you and how you do business. I want to work with you on it. Yeah. And he was just kind of like what any normal person. He's like, oh, interesting. Okay. Can I think about it? And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. And I was like, but also I'm going to need to like a salary and like funding and like insurance. And I didn't have that clout whatsoever. This was me like taking, shooting my shot. Yeah. I was just like, fuck it. What's the worst he could say? No. And then I do it myself or figure out another lane. So he takes like a week, week and a half, which was excruciating. Like that was a long period of time. And I was like waiting and waiting, which by the way, there's a small piece of that that I don't even know if you ever knew. I was talking with Marky from Glamour Kills for like nine months about starting Glamour Kills Records. So I went through business plan after business plan, lists of bands, all of these things that I was already set up to make the call to Dan. So I I leaned on some of these plans of like, here's what I'm going to do for my label. I was going to sign these bands to a previous label. It didn't pan out right, um, but I'm ready to go. Like right now, I've never cashed in favors with some of these artists. Like I'm going to like go for it. Yeah. So he called, when he finally does call me back in a week and a half or so, he says, so I thought about it a lot and the label idea, unfortunately, is just a no-go. Like- that's just a lot to take on. And like, we have a lot of sublabels at the time they had like, a Oh, bunch. we had a minute where we had, like, yeah. we had more sublabels than we did bands. Yeah. And it was just strange. So he's like, we just have a lot of those, but like, what I want to bring up is we have the same taste in music. No one's ever told me anything different. Everyone speaks so highly of you and all this stuff that why don't you just sign bands to equal vision and come work here? And I was kind of like, I literally had not thought of that. I was like, Oh fuck. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love Equal Vision. Like, I literally grew up on Equal Vision bands, all these records, everything. So why don't I just do that? And then, like, we worked it out. And over the next couple of days, he's like, this is what it would look like. This is, you know, you could work from home in Chicago. Just come out here when we need you, whatever. And I was like, well, the eventual plan is for me to be in L.A. and whatever. So he's like, great, we're going to open up an office. Francesca's out there. There might be a few others out there eventually. So we have this management company, Royal Division, which you work for. So he's like, we're going to have an office. So if that's the eventual plan, you could stay in Chicago. You don't have to move to Albany, yeah. which for me was a no-go. I would have been a non-starter, much like Tampa and then New York was, and et cetera. So um, that's how I met Dan, just a crazy that's person phone call. I don't want to tell too much of your story, but I want to get to nothing nowhere because that shit's yeah, fucking great. crazy. Yeah. You get sent nothing nowhere, right? Yeah. Our, I saw, I literally think I saw like, someone tweet about it it was really strange like someone in on my timeline which i don't even know yeah who at this point which i wish because that's a pivotal piece and i really don't um and then i i clicked on it 
and listen to I thought I think I saw a photo which was intriguing to me and then I followed just kind of like the rabbit hole of clicks where I ended up at Synergy Artist Management because mm. he was managed by Avanj and Zach. Got it. And I was like, wait a second, I know Avanj and Zach really well. I'm just going to hit him up. So I yeah. asked him like what's the deal with this nothing nowhere and I think they sent me nothing unreleased but they were just like, oh it's this blah 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 and I was just kind of like, oh shit, this is this is crazy and I like spent the entire night that the same day on YouTube because he had a bunch of videos popping on like um what are the what are those channels that oh was on? that was like a, a starry, starry a lot of a starry like, stuff yeah that was even before because like then came a bunch of other channels like yeah. a starry but I feel like a starry a starry was yeah first and I was late to that I like I didn't know what a starry was but what I did find is I went down the rabbit hole and listened to his stuff so much that night and I loved I was like literally blown away and like shocked at how great this kid that's probably played like two shows and. But what I was finding, the good comparison that really made light bulbs go off is what I would hear on the, like Astari would just keep playing other Astari videos. And mm -hmm. I, like when it wasn't a Nothing Nowhere song, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like mm -hmm. it just, by comparison, was so head and shoulders better. Yeah. And, I, and I almost didn't need that comparison, but that was like the final straw where I was like, this shit's unbelievable. Like yeah. I felt so blown away by it. Um so there was a moment where like, I was trying to figure out equal vision for it and all this stuff. And I know a lot of labels were going after it and whatever. And at this time, like probably two, three months prior, Pete Wentz and I had reconnected um, after, you know, he got so busy with the band and whatever. And we had always been really close, but not like on top of each other signing artists since the cadence and Feel by Ramen had not been like a thing. Yeah. And again, I'm at equal vision. We're not, why would we sign a band together? Right. So yeah. um, he had reached out. He'd like randomly called me one day from tour and was just like, Hey, if you ever find a band that you just love that you feel like I can help with, like we should do, you know, another, we should work together on some stuff. I was like, that's interesting. You could do whatever you want. He's like, I'm in no exclusive deals. Like if you find something and you want to take the equal vision, like I'm, I'm game. So I was like, great. So this happened and I knew labels were going crazy at it. So I'm like, man, this is going to get really out of hand. Like I need to like show, I need to like find an X factor. And I was like, wait a second, Peter just called me. Yeah. So I sent it to him and I was like, Hey, I'm going to send you something, but like, call me right when you have a real feeling about what it is. 20 minutes later, he calls me. He's like, what the fuck is this? I'm like, right? I'm like, it sounds like Drake meets brand new, which makes no sense until you hear it. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if people are going to like that or what, but I love it. He's yeah. like, I fucking love this. So yeah. I was like, all right, can we work out a deal together and whatever? And he's like, absolutely. So then he's like, you know, again, all these labels are going out. I'm like, you have to call him. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, just call Joe. So he literally calls Joe. And I feel like this, Joe will tell the story of the first phone call too, that he like at first didn't believe it was him or something. Like it was a very <laughs> it's, funny. It's like you calling your dad, like, pretend to be Pete Wentz. Hey, this yeah, is uh, totally like, your your hand over your mouth. Is <laughs> Pete Wentz from Fallout yeah. Boy. And or? it was just like a moment where it was like so funny. And then like I called Joe later that day and I was like, well, how did that go? And he's like, what the fuck? And like, it was just really cool moments to watch, you know. So we found a way to make it all work. And that was kind of how that came to be. And that's where my eyes kind of opened up to a lot of shit like that. And, you know, in the meantime, we had struck a deal also with Fuel by Ramen, um, being a part of the Nothing Nowhere story too, shortly after. And yeah. um, at that time, which is kind of crazy because then it kind of led to the next steps of me going back where yeah. we had been working on Nothing Nowhere, me as Equal Vision, Pete as DCD2, and then Mike Easterlin as Fuel by Ramen, the three of us yeah. all very cohesively together yeah. where we were finding the right steps of everything. And then- Basically, when 
I we made the first record, we put it out on Equal Vision, which yeah. was the plan. Yeah. And then the next one was gonna go on to Fuel Bar Ramen. So um, in the process of making that record, I had been working just so closely with Mike and Mike was in town in LA and I kind of sat with him and was like, dude, it's so fun working with you. He's like, he's like, it's crazy. Like the way you handle the business and like the artist just loves you and trusts you. And like, he's just like, it's just a really good feeling to know that like you're out there just accomplishing it and just bringing me in when you needed it. And I'm like, great. I'm like, and I think I said something super blunt, like, well, who handles that for all the rest of your artists? And he was just like, well, kind of whoever signs it, but there's not like a specific person. I'm like, well, FBR is such an important culture and like all of this other stuff. And it kind of was a, you know, a little bit of like a, like kind of taken aback with each other and kind of yeah. like, we, I think we both kind of were at this thing where we're like, wait, what? Like you almost didn't realize that conversation was going to happen. You're just like catching up as yeah. boys and like, you're just like, wait a minute. Like you were ready for a different answer. Yeah. Or I just wanted to like, talk about nothing yeah. nowhere. Like <laughs> yeah. what's going on. And we both kind of like looked at each other and we're like, did we just become best friends? It was like that thing oh for God. real. And then I was, and then I think I said something where he was just like, I feel like I had to break the ice because it almost got awkward. And and I said something like, well, fuck, let's do more bands together. And I think then he was just like, in my head, I don't even know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant like me at Equal Vision and we just yeah, worked with you like, by more. Yeah, some lateral stuff. Yeah, this I was kind of like, well, let's do more bands together. And he was kind of like, wait, would you ever come back? And I was like, what? I never wanted to leave in the first place. And he was kind of like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, what are we doing now? Like, it was so different yeah. from what I entered. I went to actually remember it was at the floor played a CD release show um, at like whatever that like trap door house is where you go out the back and they play on the back porch. Oh, uh, dirty laundry. Yes. No dirty. Something, no vacancy. No vacancy. Yes. they're yeah. yeah. So it was there and we were having a drink at the bar and all this conversation was happening. I was like, holy shit. And I was like, so then he's like, let me think about this for a minute. And then like the next afternoon called and was like, hey, like I ran it back up to the head of a of Atlantic, which is the guy that at, inevitably had to call me to fire me. And he <laughs> loves the idea. And Dave Rath, the roadrunner, loves the idea. Like you should come back. And I was like, okay. And it was like that simple yeah. of like an accidental, like not accidental because a lot led up to it, whether like me working with him on a rocket to the moon. So we kind of got to know each other. And then- working nothing nowhere with no preconceived like where is this gonna go together like no, we were just, just having fun dude yeah and like i mean i was there firsthand at equal vision like yeah i mean i could talk about how much that changed my career path of just how excited i was but like absolutely we were just excited about nothing nowhere there was totally. nothing else it was just this is fucking sick how do we get this out to as many people as possible so god because there's still other pieces i want to talk about but you end up going to fueled by ramen tell me the artists that you've signed now so consider nothing nowhere still. in that whole group yeah um fever 333 on roadrunner yep grandson on fbr um I'm trying to think of i don't think anything else has been announced ban oh, camino shit. on electra yep now which okay. will be announced tomorrow oh fuck yeah in like four hours so, so yeah by cool. the time this is out so Again, because there's more that I want to talk on and I don't want to get too stuck, but the we we were very close friends even through you leaving Equal Vision. Mm -hmm. Fever 333 comes up very shortly after Yeah, like we go week over one there. or two. And this feels similar to your panic Actually story. Actually pre-starting, but yeah. Holy shit, yeah. yeah. You had another moment. You get this crazy fucking job where you yeah. don't even know the potential of what it becomes. Right. You find the band. Mm -hmm. And you have to convince your entire label, you as the new guy, mm -hmm. that they need to go and like 
like right now have to ha- have to have it. Otherwise it goes somewhere else. Again, it's such a crazy uh, character trait to show like in such a positive way of you of like, dude, you just got this job. Like you yeah. could have been comfortable. You could have just been quietly like, Posted oh, what are you guys it? working yeah. on? Like, let me help here, here and here. And you're like, yo, I know I just started, yeah. but here's this. I'm going to need you to get real excited. I have every other label going for it. We're going to need to come in competitive. Like now. And we're going to need to come in right the fuck now. I, sent, I still have the email that I sent to Mike and Dave, and it's awesome. Unreal. It's the full commitment immediately. Because again, like that is a point where it's like that, like that's either like the you're the hero or like maybe you're about to get fired. Yeah. Or quick. they're like, dude, get out of here. This isn't what you signed up for. Yeah. Dude, so like, I just think that that's so crazy that after... All of that learning and like going from LLR to FBR to then self-titled to Equal Vision. It's like you have a family now and all this. And you knew. I remember talking to you about how much was on the line. Yeah. And you were still so passionate and you felt something in that music. And that comes back to the Johnny that you tell me about in the very beginning that was just like excited about music. And like all the other factors just went away. And you're like, well, we have to. And I mean, I was taught again really early on by Richard and Stephanie that during the LLR days, like only sign shit you love, because even if it doesn't succeed, at least you loved it and you gave it a shot versus if you play numbers games and sign stuff you don't like, but it's doing well. And then it falls off the face of the earth. Then you look like an asshole. Like, so at my point, when I brought them in, I was like, you know, staying up, I was having like restless nights. Cause I'm like, I have to do this. Like I have yeah. to like shoot it now. Otherwise it's not going to happen. And I very much was like, if I don't go and, and do this, what if I don't sign shit I love, I'd rather get yelled at for signing shit I love yeah. and having it fail than to sign five successful things that like I don't give a shit about. And yeah. maybe that's easy to say, but I've, I, I went for it. I said, fuck it. I want to only work with stuff I love. Yeah. So anytime I ever put my name on something, it's for a real reason. And that's something that I think could, the, that conviction, when I sat down and presented it for everyone, I think they're like, well, fuck. Yeah. You know, like, I think it was a real moment where yeah. they were like, okay, let's do it. Let's and all get behind it. I also don't want to discredit that for any of your other artists. Cause I feel like every artist no, totally. I've talked to you about, there's partly there's a story like that. that. Yeah. Uh, but I just love like the, the timing of the fever one shows the person that you are in my eyes yeah. so well that that's just such a great example that I wanted to talk Yeah. Just about. come in swinging was a lot. I mean, it's the whole, there's an age old, like you're, if you're willing to fall on the sword for it, it's like a very typical A&R term where it was like, yes, sure. Yeah. Like I'll go down swinging with bands I love. And yeah. again, if none of them ever panned out and I got let go, touche. Great. Yeah. I shot it. Let's go. Yeah. So that is crazy to progress the Fueled by Ramen story. So the other cool piece was Electra Music Group got brought back together. You didn't have any idea that that was going to be a thing. Yeah. When you started. Yeah. You're a pretty big piece of that now as well. Sure. I mean, it, it, this, the A&R staff has definitely gotten smaller from being at Atlantic and having 30 plus, and now it's like five, you know? Yeah. So I think everyone's job, and especially with coming from the Atlantic system into Electro Music Group, um, it was kind of like, this is a jumping off thing. We all are going in together with this new venture and very much, you know, everyone's got to step up their shit in a way where it was like, this is a chance for everyone to grow and to grow quickly because you are now no longer one of 30, you're one of five. And, you know, there's like pieces of that that kind of like, again, when talking to Mike about coming back and all this, it was like pretty quickly shown that you're going to be a part of this. And then when Electra happened, it was like quadrupled. It was just like, okay, now- 
you have to like really step up and go even crazier than, yeah. you know, again, jumping from the different steps that I've taken, like, it was like, are you up for it? And yeah. everyone kind of had a decision to come with or stay at the Atlantic. So right. I was kind of like, let's go. Yeah. Like, of course. Just to, to wrap it and we don't have to haul ass through this, but like, because you are so experienced in this, I feel like you're a good one to advise on this. So I'll do a question from both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, as an artist, if, if an artist is listening to this, yep. what would you say, like, first off, just explain what a good record deal should look like, like what an artist would get, like the positives of working with a label. And then also to like, uh, what to, what to do as an artist or like some of the things that you like to see in an artist to get noticed. Sure. I mean, it goes back to kind of my self-titled pitch to the producers where it's like you as a band, if you can write your own, if you like you focus on your songs and we can kind of hopefully handle or help with the rest. Mm -hmm. That's the ideal record label simplified situation. But you come to me right now and you say, Hey, I have this band. They're doing X amount of numbers. They've toured, they've done this, blah, blah, blah. I say, great. All, what we really like to do is hammer in on the vision, find out what they need, and just fucking pour gas all over it so that tell more people about it, amplify everything. And mm-hmm. okay, like this band has, like the SoundCloud stuff was less of a tour thing in the, for a while to where it was like, okay, then we help get an agent if you need it, get you on tour, get you on the right tours, get you in the other other spots, pitch you to playlists, pitch you to you know producers and features and co-writers or whatever you want as little or as much of that as possible. I mean, I've done it all. Like I've had people like, again, the second nothing know a record, he's like, I don't want to work with anyone. I want to go to my basement. And two weeks later handed me the record finished. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, should we get it mixed? He's like, it is mixed. I'm like, great. Yeah. Like that was it. But I've also done the thing where bands have turned in 50 plus songs and then we go through them and we go, this bridge is great, but I don't really love where this one, the vibe of it's like as detailed as you can imagine, we've done all of it. So it's what it's, kind of an a la carte thing with what a band needs. And again, we're once we get whatever you want to call the release or the music right, we then just tell as many people about it as possible, whether it's through publicity, touring, pitching it to DSPs or whatever marketing levels we can take it to. Like that's it. Or call our friends and other bands and be like, yo, can you take so and so on tour? Can you help here? Can you tweet about it? Like whatever yeah. like silly little parts that well, you don't think about, we we try to do. I think like you said, like you kind of like pour gasoline on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that like that kind of answers it too. And we've talked about this outside of the podcast, but like we've watched your label system do so well when a band is already on fire and then you pour gasoline on it. And I think that maybe that is the thing to say to an artist as well is like, start your fire on your own. Like a label isn't, if you pour gas on the sidewalk, it's not going to catch on fire. Yeah, exactly. It has to be something tangible or like something starting, some embers of it. Yeah, like have those embers, have the, whatever that is, make that real on your own and then find the right label to like pour gas on it. Totally, yeah. I mean, every one of the things I've signed, I could point to a specific moment of falling in love with it and then having it be affirmed by whatever they've been doing, it happens really fast after that. Nothing I've ever done takes six months to negotiate. Like it's a thing where it's like, the band falls in love with the idea of being with us as much as I have pitched and sold the, this is what we do. Like, do you want to come to the party? And if you don't, that's all good. That happens too, and it's fine. Totally. But I I like the transparency and like the instant feel of it. Um, So it's always like when someone's like, well, how do we get the attention? How do we do this? It's like, 
all of those things I just said came to me so differently that yeah. there is no one way. But if I have to, if I look at something and it's not exciting, then it's like, well, I have to make that exciting then. And if I'm more excited than they are, that's not a good relationship. Yeah. So I always look to something to have it be doing something or at least have a plan laid out. Cause even, you know, even like with fever, they had one song out, one video out and played one show. When I sat though, I could feel everything. And again, like you're saying, I knew his history and it was yeah. a similar way of where he was going. So there was a time when it was like, usually you'd be like, well, we got to go see it live. We got to do this. But it's like with that, I was like, I kind of know what's going on here. Yeah. But other stuff, it's like, you know, you want to see some sort of growth. And a lot of people get stuck in this mindset of like, well, we would be bigger if we had a label. It's yeah. like, well, not really. Right. I mean, yes, of course, I hope. But you still, it goes back to us promoting what you're, what you're making. And if what you're making is not getting me excited now, how is it going to get me excited if I'm trying to get so-and-so at Apple or Spotify? You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, I can't sell what you've made. And I get it. Like we could get into the A&R process and make better music with better song, with better producers and whatever. That's fine. That all works. But at the core of it, your shitty sounding demos should be good songs. Yeah. Or at least partly good songs where I'm like, whoa, whatever that chorus is, yeah. you could throw the rest out. That's fine. But like where it's, that it's the thing, falsetto of Saturday. You totally to that the falsetto moment. of Saturday. Where I heard it was just like, it's over. Like this band is big. And I don't, you know, again, like I never like pat myself on the back. I didn't do anything for that band outside of be their friends and right. watch the rise. But it was truly like, oh, you did it. Yeah. Got it. And they had cool moments on their previous record that I was like, you guys are really good. But that was like, oh, you're a big fucking band now. Yeah. But they weren't yet, but they sounded like it already. The other one, the other side of that that I want to touch on just a second is if you are the kid that relates more to you, that mm -hmm. like you're excited about music, you're listening to all these songs and all that, and you want to be a part of this, but you don't know where to start. Right. Where do you start? Wow. It, uh, many different ways. Again, yeah. unfortunately, it's a broad answer, but there's some specific stuff you can do. Um, it depends on what role. I would highly recommend not being picky. Like, again, I started at Feelball Ramen as a retail person. Yeah. Like, I wasn't stoked on calling indie record stores, begging them to take three Punchline or Fall Out Boy records. But that's how I knew I could be around people that were operating within my favorite label and then learning day in, day out from people that were, like, successful. So I went into it with no intention of being A&R. I had a bullet point job description that was, I still have it printed out at home. My first ever retail fuel bar ramen bullet points. It was like 20 things. And it was just like, this is what you will do every day. Wow. And I was like, great. And you were okay with that? Yeah. I was like, fuck it. Yeah. If I don't take a shot, I'll never know. And if I hate it, then I stop doing it. Yeah. Whatever. It doesn't, life's not over. If I go and then I hate it, then I didn't like it anyway. So you were open to do something that was not necessarily the dream job description. Not at all the you dream job. Yeah. Put yourself around people that you wanted to be around. Yeah. Just to bump into the right position when it came about or the right person yeah. or whatever, which I bumped into all of it at once, which was very fortunate. And again, all my friends were signed there. So it was a little bit easier. Um, but any way to provide value to anyone at a label, any which way possible, whether it be interning, whether it be Hey, I see you do A&R. Here's a, I'm going to send you a list of 10 things I listen to on a weekly basis that I find. Great. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Because what happens if I love two of them, five of them, 10 of them, and I sign one, then I'm like, yo, keep sending me stuff. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm not hiring anyone, but what if I can at some point? Or what if we are as a company? Or what if 
another label comes up and I'm like, well, now I feel like an, it's the Academia's moment again where I go, well, fuck, I'm kind of holding this person hostage when I know my buddies at Fearless are hiring or like whatever. It's like, you know, you kind of just got to show your value before you get hired. And that's what everyone's always like, how do I get an A&R job? I'm like, you don't. Mm-hmm. You literally have to do anything to prove that you would do good at it. And that's how you get it. Whether that be start a music blog, start a playlist that starts popping, like do anything to show record of like, hey, I do this. Look at who I found when. Look at what I said about them when I said it. It's time stamped on a blog, right? And it's like, I found Fall Boy in 2002 and then you guys signed him in 2003. I said they were going to blow, like whatever. And it, again, don't get it twisted because it's really easy to call your shots when you're not investing your own money yeah. and actually digging in and breaking a band. You just start vlogging and you just fucking take every artist. They're going to blow up, they're going to blow up. And that exists too, but <laughs> that's what drives me nuts, which is a whole nother podcast about agents and lawyers and people that don't invest their own money they're like i was on it early it's like cool you could sign fucking 400 bands today i can't amazing so it's just a you know whatever but any sort of track record if you could build a resume your resume doesn't matter your schooling doesn't matter none of that no one's ever asked me if i went to college i didn't so it doesn't matter but if i showed them my llr history they that's go, your- oh, that's crazy. You worked with that band before I heard of it. This one too, this one too, this one. Oh, and, and you convinced them to let you control that part of their career with them? You put your money where your mouth was. You went 30K into debt. That was it. By believing in them. Totally. And yeah. that was exactly what I think it took to convince someone like John and the guys in Fall Boy and all these other people that put in the good word for me to be like, no, he gives a fuck. Like he risked it all multiple times for these bands. And these bands are now like touring and selling and opening great tours and selling records. And it's like, those are the things without that, I would never get a job at Fubar Ramen. How would I? What yeah. They didn't have open, you know, I didn't submit a resume or anything. It just worked because it just, you bump, you bump into stuff if you do it right. Yeah. So whatever tactical way you could prove that you'd be good at it, starting your own label, doing whatever, like how many times have you and I talked about version three? Yeah. Where I was like, just do that. Dude, you, you have bullied me into doing things that are good for my career so many times. And I say that so lovingly, but it's including like, this podcast, I think actually, yeah. yeah. I mean, like I had my, like, I'll give mad props to Ben because like seeing totally. him do it so well, I was like, Killed holy it. fuck. Killed but like, yeah, like us sitting at the Moroccan lounge, the, the fucking band Camino show, we're looking at podcast it. notes on our phones and we were just like, why the fuck is this not? Yeah. Like, I was like, how did not? you not just start this tonight? Yeah. And we're just like, fuck it's funny when people challenge you like that and you're out of excuses dude you've done that to me so many fucking times good that's what it needs though but that's like a conversational person that keeps you like going and again i don't want any credit or anything it's just one of those moments that's like this is what you should be doing like all you do is talk to me about it so why you know what i mean so it was like kind of one of those natural like just and and look if you did five episodes or whatever and you were like this sucks i don't like it then it goes away what yeah. would have been the issue? Yeah. You wasted a couple hours per episode yeah. figuring out, spent a couple hundred bucks on mics and shit. It's like, that's the thing that people get in the way about. It's like, you could stop stuff. It's right. very okay to just be done with something be like, I, I did it. And then if you looked back and were like, oh, I half-assed it, that sucked. At least then you learned that. You yeah. know, like there's always something to take from it. And I mean, there was a time in my early Fubal Rama where I was fucking coasting. I was like, kind of like, disconnected from some of it and i felt really like unmotivated getting fired that day changed my life for the better wow well that's literally my last question for you was if you could go back to a part of the most uncertainty or turmoil yeah 
and give yourself any advice with where you're at now, what would that be? So maybe that is that time where you got fired. I don't know. Yeah, no, I feel like, fuck, it's, it's hard because I kind of feel like I did all right in the turmoil as, mm-hmm. as it was in the sense of like, I would agree. Keeping my head on and yeah. not being like, poor me. And I've seen a lot of people get the poor me stuff. And then like a couple months into whatever runway they have, they're like, well, I guess I should start asking around for another. It's like, I was so immediately like, all right, that fucking sucks. And I was on the phone, on and off the phone with lawyers and HR and all this bullshit. And in between that, I'm getting fired up about this new venture. And yeah. again, I'm like no longer known as like the guy at FBR. Like I was like, whoa, this is such an identity shift in a negative way, but also in a way where it's like, oh, I'm no longer the guy at FBR. Like I'm anything I want to be now. Mm. And when I first went to Feel by Ramen too, a few other labels were like, kind of reached out and were kind of like, I didn't know you were looking for a job. I was like, I wasn't. Uh, they asked. Yeah. Same thing when I went to Equal Vision. Yeah. So it's like, it's this thing of like, when you shed one thing and then you kind of knock on a couple doors, you're like, oh fuck. I maybe would have done this sooner if I knew how cool it was yeah. here. But I naturally always kind of like just took a safe route. I say that when I tell you about a lot of <laughs> weird risks, but at times you get a little coasting, you know, and you're just kind of like, all right. And honestly, it's like, there's definitely times where there's a lot of self-doubt or whatever it takes. It's, you know, only human when you do something and it doesn't pan out exactly what you wanted or whatever artist doesn't go exactly the way you needed it to. And you're like, did I fuck that up? Did they like, what the fuck happened here? So the, the human that is naive in the perfect ways that is extremely passionate about music (laughs) that has done all of these things does still feel self-doubt every now and then. hundred percent. And honestly, when they're, when you're you know, at a point of putting stuff out and it not going exactly as planned. It's like that self-doubt is so immediate because again, it bums me out that they believed in me or whatever. And then I'm looking at them going, well, I don't want to point the finger at you. So what could I have done differently? Which, you know, a lot of the way I operate now where I like, yeah. I remove as much reasons of, I remove as much hurdles away from the runway ever. So it's like, I'm putting out a song, I'm doing everything I can to where everyone that hopefully will be posting about it, knows about it. Like I'm not leaving things to chance. I'm not doing anything in the sense of like, well, I hope it works. Ooh, that, that can't happen there. I feel like that's the best, like final note to leave it on is like not leaving it to chance because I've watched you do that time and time again. And that isn't easy to do. That isn't tweeting it. That isn't saying it in a podcast. That means actionable shit. That means like the extra hours, the drive to go see Jason the sending that uncomfortable email or text yeah. to follow up on something you're passionate about. Right. And I've just seen you do that so much that you're not afraid of it anymore. Yeah. And I think it's funny because every one of those things that you build as a scary step, you do it. Right. And then you're like, well, that kind of went the way I wanted it to. And you're like, I got to just do that more. Next time I'm super fucking nervous to call an artist and explain something to him, I need to just be okay with it because at the other end, they're humans too. And yeah, there's a lot of assholes out there that are like, what the fuck, you know? And But then they're assholes, right? Yeah. And then it goes away or they're whatever. They're probably assholes regardless. Yeah, so, whether it was going to be successful or failure or they wanted to sign or didn't, like you maybe got off easy at that point where you're like, oh, now I see you're an asshole. Great. I don't yeah. need to work with you. That's good, man. Yeah. I think we did it. I, I feel like I might have to bring you back here just for like the, the advice rounds or just the, cool. the listener questions. But Load them up and we'll do it again. This was, this was really good. Well, I'm glad you started a podcast. <laughs>
Thank you for that. Uh, I told you to start one just so I could be on it. So this is all <laughs> a self a self righteous moment. And I can't wait to be on yours because I oh, know it'll shit. fucking happen. Yeah, that'll be fun at some point. You'll do it. No time soon, but yeah. Where can everybody find you? Um, I think it's just my full name on all of it, Johnny Minardi on Twitter, Instagram. You know, that's probably the easiest actually because those are yeah. Check them every now and again, and I get the alerts. So yeah, do it up. Yeah. And he's a fun follow. He always, <laughs> I feel like you're just so honest about like your, what you're listening to, you know, like you can see every day, like what yep. album you're bumping or what yep. you're excited about. It's, it's good. Hell yeah. Well, that's that. So follow along and let's have some fun. Well, hell yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank seriously. you, brother. So there it is. Johnny's story again. And if this was your first time listening and you made it this far, I truly hope you liked it. You can go find the full episode in the podcast feed. I believe it is episode 11. And let me know if you want to hear from him on another subject. Let me know if you like the best of format. And if you're this far into the episode and you really, really did like it and you want to go above and beyond, there's three things that you can do all the time that are so appreciated and so helpful. That is one, sharing it with your friends. You can post on social media wherever you want. You can tell someone in person. Two, subscribing to the show and leaving feedback on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And three, if you want to go above and beyond, donating to the show at whereareallmyfriends.com slash donate. There it is. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will be back next week with another episode.